0: Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Dear loving God, we're about to open your word. And Lord, I pray that you illuminate it to us. I pray that you would show us uniquely what you want us to see out of the Word this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that you're able to do that, that you're able to lead us into all truth. And uh, Lord, for each and every one of us, there's a different aspect of the truth that you're wanting to show us this morning. So I pray that that's what would occur in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 7, here we are. We've had Nehemiah go to Jerusalem with the blessing of King Artaxerxes, um, who's the ruler of the empire of uh, Persia and at its height that spanned from Bulgaria all the way through to another country Tibet and um and it covered 5.5 million square kilometers so it was at to that point it was the biggest empire that had ever existed um for to put that in context that is larger than the European Union countries uh, and so then um, King Arxerxes let Nehemiah back with resources and everything to begin to rebuild the wall. Now, as we saw, there was opposition from outsiders. There was opposition from insiders. Last week, we saw that there were opposition from outsiders again in kind of a last-ditch effort to, we're going to stop you building the wall by stirring up strife between you and the king. He's going to think that you're rebelling against him and he'll come in and wipe you all out. It didn't happen. So here we go with chapter 7. It says this, after the wall was finished and I'd set up the doors in the gates, the gatekeepers, singers and Levites were appointed. So after all this massive, you know, effort and climax, he just says after the wall was finished and I put the, de- the gates and the doors in the place. It's the most anticlimactic moment ever. There's no celebration. It's a bit like Act Two of Hamilton. Anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's a musical, everybody. It's a hip-hop musical about the American Revolution. And um, pretty much what happens is that Act 1 ends with this massive, massive song and then Act 2 opens with, After the war, I went back to New York, I went back to New York and I practised law. And it's like this just total like, we just had the American Revolution and now what's going on? And I feel like this is what Nehemiah's like here. So after the war was finished, this is great. The war is finished. So... The gates are in place. The doors are set in the gates. Remember last week that wasn't done yet, but now it is complete. And so he says, like, I set gatekeepers in place. Makes sense. I set singers in place. Okay, you finish the wall, you fortified the city, and you put singers in place. Is that, is that so that if they sing really badly, they'll drive away the enemy? Like the people will come really close, hear the bad singing, and then run away? And, and I put the priests in place. I put the Levites in place. Why, after fortifying a city, would they be your three priorities? Gatekeepers, we get. Singers, not so much. Levites, not so much. Priests, not so much. It's because Jerusalem was always the place of worship. Jerusalem that they've just fortified, it wasn't supposed to be a city that you come in and you flourish and whatever else. It was always a city of worship. So to set up priests and singers was a natural next step. It was almost meant, always meant to be for the king of kings. So verse two says, I gave the responsibility of governing Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah. Now that's confusing. Um, What are you doing here, Hananiah? Well, you called for me. No, I called Hananiah. I thought you are saying Hananiah. I've got to get some stuff done. Um, So it's confusing. But anyway, the commander of the fortress, for he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. This is always Nehemiah's priority. He always... He always wants to put people in that fear God. He is a man who has a bias to action. Like I, When I think about Nehemiah, Daz and I had a word once that, that Daz was like Nehemiah. And as I've, we've read again and again, I feel like, yep, that's true. And if Daz, you've heard him preach for, from Nehemiah at least 42 times. Um, Nehemiah is a man that Daz... Does, does, identifies with he's got a bias to action he's laser focused on getting the job done but also he fears God he's God focused so these people may have been great people with a great skill set but Nehemiah's priority is that they have a devotion to God that they had to be faithful and they had to fear God if you're not faithful you won't be consistent and if you fear God then you won't have that reverence that's required to get it right And Hanani is our guy who back at the start kicked off the whole narrative. He's the one who at the start gave Nehemiah the report that the city was broken down. So verse 3, I said to them, do not leave the gates open during the hottest part of the day and even while the gatekeepers are on duty, have them shut and bar the doors. There's a bit of um, conjecture around that, whether it was to close the gates while they're having a siesta or to open the gates early, close them late. Regardless, they were wanting to be important. Uh, wanting to be fortified. Appoint the residents of Jerusalem to act as guards, everyone on a regular watch. Some will serve at sentry posts and some in front of their own homes. At that time, the city was large and spacious, but the population was small and none of the houses had been rebuilt. So this is talking about people taking personal responsibility. They built the walls up, but that didn't negate personal responsibility. And it's the same with us. We don't just... Do something great and then that's it for the rest of all time and and that should take care of us now. We don't just go to church and we've got pastors now, so that's it. We can rest on our laurels and we don't need to think about anything else. We need to keep taking personal responsibility. Constant vigilance is how um, Alistair Moody puts it. And I I can't remember if I shared it in this service or in the 4 p.m., But when we were going to go to America, we used to just round corners of the house and he would have like like his fingers like this to our heads. And he would say just at the back of us, we're going to America, you have to be more aware. And um, he was trying to teach us to be aware and to take personal responsibility for our safety. And so constant vigilance, we need to have constant vigilance. We don't just build a wall and then we feel safe and that's it. We need to have this ongoing sense of Um, personal responsibility. Verse 5, So my God gave me the idea. That's Nehemiah. He's sending up bullet prayers. He's praying and fasting but he's always listening for the voice of God. So my God gave me the idea to call together all the nobles and leaders of the city along with the ordinary citizens for registration. I had found the mm, genealogical record of those who had first returned to Judah and this is what was written there. Now from verse 6, we go into a litany of record of names. And Phoebe to come and read them all out for us individually. No, 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 we're actually not going to read them at all. We're just going to cycle through these slides because I don't want to just forget about them because they're in the Bible. And I love that they're included in the Bible because these are people and these are, these, they're listed here and, and they mattered and they're important. And, and God cared about them and you matter and you're important and God cares about you. And the Bible says that every day of your life is written in his book. Your name is written somewhere in God's book as well. We look at these names and, and often don't bother reading them, but, but they're, you, they're written down in the book and so is your name because you're important and you matter as well. Let's keep going. One more slide, I think. Um, okay. 62, this group included the families of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda, a total of 642 people. Three families of priests, Hobiah, Hakoz, and Barzillai also returned. This Barzillai had married a woman who was a descendant of Lara of Gilead, and he had taken her family name. Next verse. They searched for their names in the... Jinni geni- oh, gen- mm. Yep. That genealogical records. But they were not found, so they were disqualified from serving as priests. Now, why all the names? Why all the registrations? There were three reasons. There was the reason of property, because they were going to go back and take possession of property, and they needed to be found in the records to see if they had a right to it. There was the issue of purity, whether or not they were true Israelis and had a right to go there. And then there was priestly reasons, whether or not they could serve. Because if you tried to serve in the temple without being a priest, that was not allowed in that day. Let's keep going. Whole bunch of other names and um, things they took, things they gave. We're just going to cycle through and not pause there. And we get to verse 73. It says, so the priests... The Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants and some of the common people settled near Jerusalem. The rest of the people returned to their own towns throughout Israel. Now remembering that verses and chapters came in in about 11th century, this would have just been one big book before that. Most random um, divide of a verse ever is this one here, 73, in October when the Israelites had settled in their towns, chapter, chapter 8. Verse 1, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. Just inside the water gate. Okay, they asked Ezra, the scribe. Now, maybe you're here for week one, when Mike Kramer so brilliantly outlined the whole of the book and the geopolitical, historical context of the book and everything and talked about the fact that Ezra and Nehemiah they were one book at the start so here they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses so here we've got the walls finished all the people are together and they come to the water gate for one purpose to hear Ezra the scribe read out the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given for Israel to obey so on October 8th anyone got a birthday on October 8th That would have been a cool moment, but it's not. Um, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and all the children all to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. So just a few things to note here. All the people assembled with a unified purpose. They all came with one purpose to hear the Bible being read out, to hear the book of the law read out. And the purpose also was from that was their perspective. They had the purpose to come and hear. The purpose from Ezra and the priests was that they would be able to understand. They've gathered people old enough to understand. They read aloud to everyone who could understand. Now, Ezra the scribe, verse 4, stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. So if you're a church person who's got something against platforms, it's there in the Bible for a purpose, so just chill. Um, Verse 5, Ezra stood on the platform in view of the people, they have their purpose, when they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. I want you to imagine this morning as we came around the going deeper section where we know we're going to read a whole lot of Scripture, that as soon as I began to read, that you all leapt to your feet because the Bible was about to be read. This is how high they hold Scripture, is that when the Bible begins to be read, they jump to their feet. Now for Ezra, it says... Um, Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So we open the book and everyone stands to their feet and they all yell out, Amen, Amen, and all fall to the um, ground on your faces. So we're going to try that today. Um, (laughs) I, I just wonder if you've ever thought of holding Scripture that highly. I wonder if you've ever considered that what's in here is so important that a whole people group would gather together and listen to it like that. It's interesting that it's not being read in the temple courts because God's purpose always was never to hold the Bible in a certain place. It was always to be applied to daily life and read out in the city streets. And so today, if you think, well, I come to church to hear the Bible, it's always meant to be in your life on a daily basis and applied wherever you go. Verse 7, the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebel, and Hanan, and Peniah, then instructed, so they instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. Now for this to occur, what must have happened is that they actually, so Ezra's up on the platform, the Bible, but they're actually going through the crowd and telling people and instructing them on it. We don't know how much of the Pentateuch was read on that day, the Pentateuch being the first five books of the Bible, how they would have gotten through it from early morning to lunchtime and people going through it and just explaining more fully to people the Bible that was read out. Um, verse 5, oh, I've just read verse 5 and verse 7. 8, they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping people understand each passage. So on this great occasion where they've not had the Word of God read to them for so long because they've been in a different country, in, in Babylon, they've been in exile, now they are able to freely come and read again. Now, I don't know what this is like because I've never been in a place where the Bible has been restricted, where I've never been able to take my face source document and apply it and read it whenever I like. But I can imagine that if it was taken from us, or just say COVID, the great hoax that was COVID was actually all a ploy. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm not that person. But, but that, that, that it was a ploy just to get us to not be able to meet together and that it was a ploy to stop us from reading our Bibles and stop us having access. And imagine if, like I'm sure that that was a behind ploy from, not from the government, okay, but from the end, that didn't want us to continue our faith, that wanted to actually um, have us, be distracted and watered down and get sick of watching online and eventually just watch other things instead so I'm sure that that was actually you know something that did happen but imagine if it was able to be freed up again having been confiscated from us don't you reckon that we'd come together and we'd be so excited I don't know about you when we first got to start singing again together there was a little part of me this in that But I imagine if we'd been taken away for generations and not been able to sing our songs and not been able to read our word that when we came back together that this might be the kind of reaction and I wonder if we could capture something of that kind of thought and feeling and enthusiasm in our everyday faith walk that we would if it was taken from us for a long time. Clearly explained the meaning of what was being read helping the people understand each passage. Just in this final minute... Um, before we reflect for a little while. 42,000 people, it says, came back. And if you add up all the numbers, Phoebe, Stace, maths person, if you add up all the numbers of all the people groups that came back, it doesn't actually equal the final number, which is annoying for people like you, Phoebs. You're trying to work out the sign, cos, and tan of everything that happened there. But actually, it's probably um, just maybe women and, and teenagers that they didn't account because they didn't back then. I don't understand how they would have felt because I've never been displaced. But there are a whole lot of people that are displaced. It's a day today to remember why we haven't been displaced. It's like Jason was talking about, that actually there have been people who have sacrificed heavily so that we haven't been displaced. Um, And so this morning, I just wonder if we could just take a moment to be really grateful for that. Can we do that? Uh, We did at Anzac Park this morning, just got grateful in silence so let's just take a moment and be grateful for the fact that for those of us who haven't there might be some in here that have but for those of us who haven't to be grateful that we've never been displaced let's just take a second now just to take a moment to feel some empathy for those people who have Um, We know the generational impact of displacement uh, that affects our First Nations people. We know that the UNHCR says that there's over 80 million displaced people in our world today, over 26 million people in refugee camps today, 153,000 in one camp in Kenya, just thrust together, displaced people. And we read about these people and the celebration of them coming back I wonder if we could just take a moment to feel empathy, and then I'm going to pray for those people, and and uh, and then we'll continue into our reflection. Lord God, we just ask for people who have been displaced in our world. Lord, we could get just so comfortable and so grateful and take it for granted, but we want to, Lord, we want to feel empathy. We want to remember. And so, Lord, I pray for people who are feeling the generational impact of displacement, God, and and who just feel like they can't find their place. God, I I pray that you would help them, Lord, that we would be part of the reconciliation of all people, Lord God. Lord, I pray for refugees who are out of their countries, God, or those who are displaced inside their countries and just have no home, Lord, we pray for them. We pray, Lord, that that we would be part of the solution. We're so comfortable, Lord, in our panelled houses, as it were. Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us to give where needed, to pray and not forget, Lord, to consistently feel empathy for, Lord. And, Lord, we pray that, um, Lord, for those in refugee camps, Lord, I just think of myself and, and my family, my children, Lord, if we were in a place like that right now and I'm busted, God, Lord, I pray for every single person that's in a refugee camp. I pray that you would protect them, Lord. Lord, for as that go on, I pray against human trafficking in those environments. I pray, Lord, that you give government solutions, that you would um, depose dictators, Lord. That you would, Lord, you would have your way. And we thank you, Lord, that we are waiting and we have great hope for the renewal of all things and the restoration of all things in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. And usually we'd have someone different doing this part, but... I'm up again. So um, this morning, we're going to talk about a sense of occasion, a sense of occasion. So the online dictionary defines a sense of occasion as a feeling of ceremony, fanfare or pomp and circumstance about a certain event or situation. For example, was she laid out the nice tablecloth and dinner settings, lit candles and had classical music playing to give the dinner a real sense of occasion. Daniel Collins sounds like your perfect evening for you whom. When I talked about the period movie that I saw. So is that where a bunch of teenage girls get really emotional? <laughs> okay. So the fact is that we all have events in our homes that we give special occasion to. What is it in your home that you have give a sense of occasion to? Is it birthdays? Is it Christmas? Or is it is it graduations? What is it that you give a sense of occasion to? I literally have the best mum in the world. Um, but birthdays were not given a sense of occasion in our house. Now, I didn't care because I felt so loved in, in every other way that I didn't need that as well. And so um, it was a game for me to see how long I could go without my birthday being noticed in the day. And, uh, and so one time my sister ran up to playground at recess and said, Bron, Happy birthday got home from school and mum got home, she worked an hour and a half from where I was at school and got home, you know, that night and said, Brian, I was writing the date on the board and I realised it was your birthday and, and, but I didn't care because I, I was so loved in every other way. Christmas, not really given a sense of occasion till we were teenagers and watched all the Christmas movies and decided to make it fun for us. Holidays, however, were my mum's special. We went always away for holidays, her being a school teacher, we'd always go away, we never stayed in motels because we didn't have the money, we always stayed with friends and family, but there'd be trips on the train into the city, there'd be um, you know, trips to the beach, there'd be um, museums, galleries, Dan Coleman again wished he could join us but couldn't, um, but it was fantastic and, and, and that, the holidays were the bomb. You know, in fact, I can't judge mum at all about birthdays. I myself am terrible. One time during the school holidays, we kind of just missed Lockie's birthday altogether and then just had it the next day. Didn't tell him what date it was. It was just like, it's your birthday today. But Bella knew because Bella always knows. <laughs> and, uh but the holidays, man, mum could do holidays. We'd go to Newlings and we'd get, we could only have soft drinks in, um, in the summer holidays. And in those days, you got what you paid for. Like there was, they had all the and all the sugar added. You got value for money in those days. <laughs> they didn't leave all the stuff out. We had the colourful, it was the best. So what are yours? What's your sense of occasion? Mine's Christmas. I'm pretty much Mrs. Claus. Um, but what, what gives you a sense of occasion? I think about Anzac Day. And John Howard really brought back a sense of occasion to Anzac Day, didn't he? A, a, and school marches and all that kind of thing really brought it back on the main page. But it's got a sense of occasion attached to it. This morning at the dawn service, a sense of occasion. My question is, do you have any sense of occasion around things of faith? So you might have sense of occasion around birthdays, Christmases, everything else. but do you have any sense of occasion around things of faith? I don't mean that you put it on or that you create some fanfare, but this sense of reverence, like you'd bring to Anzac Day, or like you'd bring to, if you walked into a room that had been created especially for you, a sense of reverence, have you brought anything like that to faith? Or is it peripheral to your life? Or is it central? Does it dictate the daily rhythms of your life or is it something that you tack on if you have time for? Now think about this book of Nehemiah and that when Ezra opens the scroll, there's a roar. There's a roar that goes out. There's this appreciation for the word of God. William Tyndale was a man that had such a, a reverence for the word of God and he wanted to give people access to it. In the, late, in the 14th century, he was at a time where to have an English copy of the Bible was um, condemnable by death, and he was burnt at the stake for carrying an uncertified copy of the English Bible. You see, back then, they wanted to keep the power, and, and he was dobbed into the Holy Roman Empire, and they wanted to keep the power by having a central place, a sacred place, with a sacred person and a sacred text that was in Latin, so you couldn't even understand what was said, but that had the power for them. And he was like, no, no, I'm going to get a copy of the Bible into the hands of every person. A farmer, which was an uneducated person back then, not anymore, they're super educated now, um, but a farmer back then was um, that they, they, he said, I I, I would that they would know more about the word of God than any priest in Rome. And that was his desire, that everyone would have access Little did the Holy Roman Empire know that they didn't need to worry about it because there'd come a time where everybody had access to the Word of God and no one cared. No, that's not true. But, but nearly, right? Like, do we hold it with the reverence that William Tyndale died for now that we've got a copy of it in our phone and in our hands? do we Do we be willing to go to the stake and be burned alive for it like he did? When he was dying, he cried out loud and fervent voice as it's recorded. He said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And within four years, there were four English translations of the Bible completed. He died so that we might have access to the word of God. Now, Jesus died so that we might have access to eternal life. And that's why we come around communion. We have the bread and the juice and we should bring a sense of occasion to that. We had some month, um, and we could we could get really familiar with it. We could get really annoyed at the little contraptions and the wafer that tastes like cardboard and the juice that smells like it's fermented and tastes like it's fermented, but not in a good way. And and we could get really familiar with that and annoyed at trying to peel off that plastic thing. And COVID, I hate COVID. COVID safe. We could get annoyed at that and and, and think it's so far removed from the original, like where they said that some people were were feasting and and other people were going hungry it's nothing like the early church but we can still bring the same sense of occasion to that little sealable contraption because Jesus died to give us access think about this the book of Revelation I know we're going right there but but I've been reading this book recently and I want you to hear this about the end of days Chapter 5, it says this. Then I saw a scroll. Interesting. We're just reading about a scroll in, in Nehemiah. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing inside, on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I and this is John who's having this vision, began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, "'Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory.'" He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders had a bunch of horns and a bunch of eyes and etc. There's a whole lot of imagery and metaphor. Let's not get hung up on it. Verse 7, he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne and when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense which are the prayers of God's people, our prayers this morning are held in these gold bottles, I don't get it, it's awesome and they sang a song, a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you are them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth oh, it goes on, it's so good, going to chapter uh, next, seven, chapter 7 it says verse 10 and they were shouting with a great roar salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the lamb and then they fell down again and they sang a bit and then and then um, verse chapter 8 verse 1 it says this when the lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour Someone break the silence. Good one, Scott. <laughs> silence for half an hour. This sense of awe and reverence across every tribe and tongue and multitude. After this huge roar, then silence. This sense of occasion again and again. And, and as you read the book of there's just sense of occasion upon sense of occasion. So my wondering and pondering this morning is, will we have any sense of occasion in our engagement with the Word of God. Let's not forget that the Word that was in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, is Jesus. So as we engage with Jesus, is there any sense of occasion about that? Or are we just taking for granted so much that, yeah, Jesus, I need your help now because I'm in trouble, but I'll forget you tomorrow because I'm not in trouble anymore? Or do we have this sense of awe and sense of occasion around the fact that we even get to engage with him and do we have any sense of occasion about the fact that you're able to read the Word of God? Because there's going to be a whole lot of sense of occasion in days to come. Lockie had this dream uh, the other day. Now, this is not in the Bible, okay? So just if you want to correct me on my theology, he had a dream. He's 15. Um, but what you've got to know about Lockie is he's like, of all our children, the girls seem to know stuff. And, and they're like, you might hate this word, but they're pretty woke they, they know stuff about things, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure is what woke means. Um, but they're, they're able to tell you about issues and they're able to have opinion on issues and well-informed opinions and think through things clearly. And then you ask Locke, what do you think, Locke? He's like, oh, I don't really care. Um, no, Locke, it's important. What do you think about this issue? Yeah, I've never really thought about it. Okay, excellent. Um, and so Locke is casual. He is super chilled. He gets in the car the other day when we pick him up. Uh, to head to Queensland, and we love that laid-back nature of Locke. He gets in the car and he just went, I had the best stream last night. And, um, and we said, oh, yeah, what was it? And he went, oh, we were at, um, I think it was Port Macquarie. Uh, anyway, I'm going to get a bunch of the details wrong, but it'll suit my story a whole lot more. So we're at Port Macquarie, and we're on the beach, and um, all the youth were there, and then there was, like, this massive crack, like a massive crack, like you've never heard it before, and it hit the headland. And, and and I was like, wait, what? Because what? it was so loud that everybody heard, and I was like, hang on, what's happening here? And and, and he said, and, and then there was like this this figure that rose up out of it, and his chest glowed, and I was like, yes, it's happening. Because for Locke, a kid who's grown up in church and heard the Bible all his life, he's like. Jesus is coming back. Jesus has come back. It's like, whoa, it's happening. And he said, everyone's like still looking and wondering. And he said, and then Zach was a little bit further on from me. He's like, yes, it's happening. And he said, then this bit was a bit sad because not everyone was excited about it. But all through these crowds and crowds of people, there were all these yells of, yeah, it's happening. It's happening. And they knew that Jesus was returning. There was this great roar and this great shout and this sense of occasion and church. That's where we're headed. The sense of occasion that was back in Nehemiah as we read from the scroll is a sense of occasion that we should live with in the already, not yet. We don't live there, but we've been given access to the Word of God and access to Jesus right now in preparation for what's to come. So let's make sure that we grab a hold of it and live with that sense of occasion. Now, I recognize that not for everybody does have that same feeling this morning of, yeah, and I remember that Jill, mum, and I were on the way home from the movies once in Kara. and... Um, and we're heading home, we're just seen Titanic. And, and Jill, who was a spiritual one in our, of our three kids, she said, oh man, when, when the mum was tucking her kids into bed and it was just all so unexpected. You remember that scene in Titanic? Anyone seen it? Anyone seen Titanic? Jack dies, just letting you know. Um, <laughs> um, Anthony Staines did that to me on the day, so I was just sharing the love. Um, Jill said, um, wow, it was so fast, that's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. People are just going to know. And, and, and a strange occurrence for me in watching sad movies is that I would always just cry um, a whole lot after them, like just go out the back in the farm and just cry, just love a good emotional thing. Me and Dan Coleman used to uh, do the same. And um, so I just spent So they just thought, oh, this is Bron after a sad movie, just crying in the back. In fact, as a rebellious teenager, I was crying because I was going, heck, Lord, if you come back, I am not ready. I'm not ready and I was like gutted, knew that my life wasn't right with God and so I encourage you because all it took for me in that moment was to say Lord I'm sorry, I want to be ready for you, I want to live for you and that's as simple as it can be for you in your own private time today Um, in order to be able to feel that same sense of excitement that Zach and Lockie felt on the beach